Good morning and Happy New Year to everyone. Um, the first thing I want to say, are we all happy Christmas is done? Because we're going to be talking about Easter today, okay? Um, or at least a, a part of it. Um, and before you say, really, come on, that's three months away. Um, I think Nigel and I were chatting after last week's meeting and... Uh, he said, yeah, but there's Easter eggs in the shops. And, um, yeah, in the week, I accidentally went into a supermarket, and um, he's right. There are Easter eggs in the shops. So if Tesco's and the co-op can talk about Easter, then I think so can we. Is that all right? <laughs> and just one more thing about Easter. Easter Sunday is the day after my birthday this year, okay? So I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> All right. So, so yeah, we're going to look at we're going to look at a part of the Easter story. Um, we're going to look at the empty tomb. Okay. Now, some of the things we're going to discuss today and look at um, gets talked about on Alpha. So, this is a kind of advert as well for the Alpha course, or at least the things that I'm going to talk about were talked about on Alpha about 15 years ago. I've got a little bit of catching up to do. Um, so this is kind of hopefully to whet your appetite um, for the Alpha course um, we've got coming up. So we're going to look at the empty tomb. And of course, this is the tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea and is the tomb that Jesus' body was laid in after his crucifixion. Okay, I've got two aims this morning. If you're a Christian here today and you know the power of the risen Christ in your life, I just want to, my aim really is to just up our confidence perhaps as we begin a new year in what we believe. We're about to move into the hive we're about to hopefully welcome lots and lots of members of our community who, who won't know Jesus, who don't know Jesus. And if, if I can just give you just a notch more confidence in the faith that you have, that it is not just a blind faith, then that's what I'm hoping to do. If you're not a Christian here today, and, and I know this is church, Okay, so I know there'll be a lot of Christians here, but your position individually before God, I guess, is your business. And, and we don't know everyone's state before God. If you're, so if you're not a Christian, if you don't know whether this Jesus fellow is real, I'm going to, it's kind of testimonial because... I grew up, those, those of you who were here when we were interviewed just before Christmas, I grew up in the Church of England, a fairly staid middle-of-the-road church. No disrespect. Um, as soon as I was old enough to escape going, I did. And then in my mid-twenties, I began to investigate the Christian faith because I'd met someone I fancied, basically. It was a Christian. <laughs> we come in all sorts of different ways. Um, the one thing, the one thing I could never escape, and it is a strong belief of mine, as it will be for many of you, 
is that that tomb was empty and the only credible historical explanation for that tomb being empty is that the occupant came out of it alive. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. Um, so we've got, we've got some um, evidence um, for my notes playing up. Um, we're going to look at three sources of evidence for the fact that there was an empty tomb, okay, that it was a known fact. Everybody seemed to know at that time in that place that there was this empty tomb. What it meant, we'll get on to later. But I want to look at the evidence to suggest that there was an empty tomb, okay, because there's loads of arguments that he never went in the tomb. It was just, just his body was done away with. Before we do that, I want to step back a little bit because a lot of that evidence comes from the Bible, the scriptures, the, the gospels that we read. And so we need to see, we need to see that the gospel is good written historical evidence for the truth. Because there seems to be, I don't know, there seems to be a mindset that, oh, you can't believe what the Bible says. You ever heard that? You can't believe that today. That's old. No, we've, we've gone beyond that. You can't believe what it says. But the truth is, the Bible is good historical evidence. Now, ancient historians use something called textual criticism. I don't mean the historians are ancient. Um, just this to the ancient history. They use this thing to analyse evidence that's written down in, in ancient manuscripts. Okay? And textual criticism, textual analysis... There's two rough rules of thumb, okay? So they would look at the number of independent ancient manuscripts that describe the story of what, what we're talking about. And then, secondly, they would look at the time gap between when the events happened themselves and when the writer started to write them down, okay? We're happy with that? So... Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Okay? There are ten independent manuscripts of the account of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars in existence. I don't know where they are, but there are ten. They were written around a thousand years after the events. Okay, so we've got we've got ten ten versions, basically. That's pretty good evidence, wouldn't you say? I think that's pretty good. I think I would say, yeah, okay, Julius Caesar, yeah, the, the Romans were in Northern Europe, looks like it, from these accounts. Now, one source suggests of the New Testament, in libraries and universities around the world, there are 25,000 copies. Okay. That looks pretty good to me. Mark's Gospel, of the four Gospel accounts, Mark's Gospel is widely recognised to be the first written and dates... I can't remember why I know this. <laughs> um, but the date for writing that Mark wrote his Gospel 
something between 50 and 75 AD. I reckon about AD 58, which is less than 40 years after the cross, in around AD 30, AD 33, something like that. The Bible is very strong evidence. Now, you have to be careful because sometimes the Bible is, is obviously not being narrative or historical fact. But when it is, it's credible. There are so many copies around. Okay, so the Bible's believable. Right, we're going to look at three different sources to suggest that everybody knew about this empty tomb. Okay, so let's look firstly at the biblical accounts, some of the some of their story in there, we can analyse that. I think you have to, it's not a great phrase to use, but you have to sort of slightly play devil's advocate um, for a minute and, and assume that it's a lie, it's not true. Um, so let's do that. Okay, be careful. Um, so firstly, the tomb was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible tells us that. He was buried in a known tomb. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were 70, a 70-strong 70 group of men who were the religious rulers at that time. And they weren't generally friendly with this new Christian with these new Christian beliefs. In, in, they, were part of the, they were part of the group that crucified Christ. It wouldn't have been helpful for a gospel writer making something up to say that the tomb belonged to him. Firstly, because he was a historical person and he could have turned around and gone, no, I didn't. Nothing to do with me, mate. So you wouldn't pick a specific Jewish leader that you could, we could see historically there. And secondly, it would have been embarrassing for the disciples if the only person that was brave enough to go to Pontius Pilate and say, can I have that body and put it in this tomb, was somebody from the Jewish Sanhedrin and not them. So Joseph of Arimathea, owned the tomb, it was his, he's a, he's a credible historical figure. Secondly, women discovered the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday. And it, why is this compelling? Well, sorry, ladies, but at that time, women, women's evidence wasn't reliable. You couldn't bring women's evidence in court. If you're going to make the story up, you wouldn't say that then, would you? Because nobody's going to believe, believe them. So, women discovered the tomb. Another piece of evidence for the Gospels being true. Also in the Bible, we can see that Local Jews, the Jewish people, had already begun to suggest that the, that the disciples stole the body. 
So, so, so Jewish people at the time are saying, well, the disciples stole the body. Well, before we, before we get into whether they did or not, they're admitting that there's an empty tomb. So there was one. So not only have we got Jesus' followers saying there's an empty tomb, we've got local Jews also saying there's an empty tomb. So from the Bible itself, it seems to be historical evidence. Okay? Okay, well let's let's move out let's move outside of scripture for now. And we can see that around that time there was there was also Jewish evidence of an empty tomb from non-biblical sources. Okay? Now, there were two letters in wide circulation, apparently, in the Jewish community at that time. Um, and one of these was quoted by um, Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo, or Trifo. It said this, a godless and lawless heresy had sprung up from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified. But his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross, and now deceived men by asserting that he had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. So they knew there was an empty tomb going on. And the second one was another caustic note, again written to defame Jesus. This is called the Toledos Yeshu. Jesus, in it, Jesus is described as the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier. You may have heard that theory before. Obviously nothing new. Um, but later on in the text, it says this. Diligent search was made, and he, Jesus, was not found in the grave where he had been buried. A gardener, a gardener, that rings a bell, a gardener, had taken him from the grave and had brought him into his garden, had buried him in the sand over which the waters flowed into the garden. So it seems to be common knowledge. We have an empty tomb. It seems to be common knowledge in that part of the world at that time. Um, and I want to make, I want to bring one final piece of evidence for an empty tomb that may suggest that the Roman emperor himself knew about this empty tomb in some, in this outpost of his kingdom. There's something called the Nazareth inscription. So, this was a stone around that time that was erected in Nazareth with an inscription on it, which was a new, well it wasn't a new law, it was just different punishments, okay, for breaking the law. So this was an edict about um, the new punishment for entering and desecrating a grave. And before that, if you were caught entering a grave that you shouldn't be going into or desecrating it in some way, you would pay a fine, and then that would be the end of it. 
suddenly this edict suggested that entering a tomb and desecrating it was going to be a capital offence. If you were a Roman citizen, you would be beheaded. If you weren't, you'd be nailed to a cross, just like Jesus. Well, that's, that's just ramped up a bit, hasn't it? You pay a fine, and now suddenly you're going to be executed. And it's interesting, because was this the emperor's response to this story of an empty tomb? in Israel there's a lot of you can, you can, I suggest you google the Nazareth inscription and read about it and there's a lot of talk of what the inscription means and, and where it came from and the, you know, the, the particular stone that it was made of but it's interesting because we've suddenly for no particular reason got this huge upgrade in the punishment for breaking into a tomb or a grave was that now the Roman emperor was the king of the known world so did the whole world know about this empty tomb maybe maybe okay so the empty tomb is a historical fact okay everybody seems to know about it maybe even the emperor himself. So how are we going to explain how are we going to explain how that tomb was empty on that first Easter Sunday? Now this is what I could never get away from. The only explanation is that Jesus came out of it alive and he's still alive today. But let's put ourselves on the other side of the argument for a minute. Um, if it was a lie, if it wasn't true, it's a bit of a conspiracy, it's a bit of a fraud, and there's some suspects in this great fraud. So who, who are our suspects? And let's see what we make of these arguments. All right, well, the first suspect himself is Jesus. So some will say he didn't die on the cross. And he was laid in the tomb, and then he recovered to get out of it a couple of days later. Unlikely. Um, I don't know if you know... Does anyone remember uh, Mel Gibson's film? It's probably about 20 years ago now, The Passion of the Christ. An extremely graphic portrayal of Jesus' last 12 hours. And in fact, Quentin Tarantino, who is known for his nice, mild, cosy dramas, um, said basically Mel Gibson, who, yes, I guess he is a, a controversial figure, but he's upped the bar on Hollywood violence by this film. My opinion on that film is that it didn't go far enough. I think Jesus was treated worse than even that. You could not show, you could not portray the horror that he went through. He would have been 
thrashed with an inch of his life with a whip containing sort of with bits of bone and metal woven into the strips with his torn flesh from his back many died under just that alone he would have then been forced to carry the cross beam to the site of his execution and then six inch artillery nails would have been banged into his hands and feet to attach him to the cross and he would have hung there until he died. And then he was laid in the tomb. So after going through all that, let's still assume that he didn't die. He went into a tomb with a one and a half ton stone across the entrance. He's unlikely to be in any fit state to move that stone about 48 hours later. So they knew what they were doing when they crucified people, the Romans. They crucified thousands. They knew how to do it. He didn't survive cross. So it wasn't Jesus himself. He didn't. It wasn't him that was responsible for the fraud. So who else could it have been? Well, what about the authorities? Maybe the Jewish or the Roman authorities took the body. Fairly improbable. In fact, probably the least probable argument at all. Because if they had the body... And then the disciples started saying, he's alive, he's risen from the dead, it's a miracle. They'd have said, no, here's the body. So it wasn't them. What about, what about robbers? What about if robbers had stolen the body from that tomb? What about if the grave was robbed? Again, this is very unlikely... And the reason being is that the, the tomb itself wasn't actually empty. Jesus wasn't in it, but his grave clothes were. And the headpiece that he wore had been folded neatly and put to one side. In other words, the only things that were worth nicking from that, from that tomb were still there. So it can't have been, it can't have been robbers. And then I guess the most, I suppose the most widely held view to explain the empty tomb is that the disciples stole the body, right? That's probably an argument you get to hear, hear most. Maybe they stole the body. And then they started this rumour that Jesus was alive and to carry on what they believed. Again, I think this is unlikely because firstly to... To steal the body from the tomb, they would have had to get past a bunch of soldiers. And you've got to remember, they were followers of Christ. They'd seen him brutally executed. Peter couldn't even admit to knowing him. So are they brave enough to go to the grave and steal the body and then lie about it? I don't know if I don't know if you you've heard the stories of how 
you know, particularly the apostles met their deaths. You know, you know the things about Peter being crucified upside down, Andrew was on a wooden cross, they were sawn in two, beheaded. I think um, was John was the only survivor and he was exiled to a, to a Greek island. And, and, you know, we think of that, oh, nice holiday, Greek island. But it would have been some stinking penal colony where he wouldn't have had enough food and his well-being would not have been looked after. But for the others, they met horrendous deaths. If you knew that was a lie, if you knew that was a lie, well, I wouldn't do it anyway. And then you hear stories of how Nero, you know, Nero, the Roman emperor, not a big friend of Christians, was he? Now, he would, apparently, the story is that he would regularly um, string up Christians in his garden parties and set a light to them. I just want to put it out there that if you knew that was a lie, if you knew the empty tomb was false, you don't, you don't go through that, do If it was a lie that Jesus rose from the dead and that he simply died on that cross, his body went somewhere that we don't know. This is a lie that benefits no one. No one comes out of it. Not Jesus, not the local authorities, not his followers. There's just no reason to make it up because it doesn't benefit anyone. And therefore, I think the only logical and rational historical conclusion that you can come to, the story of that empty tomb, is that Jesus of Nazareth walked out of it alive. Now people will say, yeah, but he couldn't have risen from the dead because it's a miracle, and we don't believe in miracles. Um, but if you just set that aside for a minute and look at the reality of the empty tomb, the risen Christ, because it's the only plausible explanation. That tomb existed, he existed, it was empty, he walked out of it alive, he is now alive today. And if that tomb's empty, that changes everything for everyone, every man woman and child that has ever lived on this planet. It is the biggest event in human history. And I tried. Do you know what? I tried. It can't be true. It can't be true. And you know the story of where um, I can't remember who it is. It's Paul, isn't it? The Apostle Paul who he's told, stop kicking against the goats. And that's basically, it's a farming analogy um, about horses that will, that will kick against, I don't want that tree, get off. And I didn't want to believe that it was true. And yeah, it is. It was. It will be forever. So guys, I just want to leave you with that.
And I hope that, I hope that this morning we've heard a rational argument for what we believe. Faith. You could never, honestly, cards on the table now, you could never prove the existence of God one way or another. You can never disprove. And you know what? I think God wants it that way because he has this little thing that he gives us called faith. And it's a gift. And there's always got to be an element of that. But leaving that aside for a minute, what we believe makes sense. It makes sense historically. It makes sense when you look at the evidence. And so you don't have to switch off your brain. You don't have to switch off all rational thought. And I don't know, as, as we go through this year, we will meet non-Christians in, in, as we open up the hive. And we may get into conversations. We've got Alpha coming up. You might, you might not be discussing the tomb itself, but in the back of your mind, just know that you might be sharing your testimony with them or something. In the back of your mind, just know that what I believe is, is actually quite sensible and fits, fits history. So I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it there. And, um, yeah, if you want to talk to me afterwards, you might say, no, you were wrong about that. That's fine. But, it's the truth, it's the truth upon which we stand. Easter is the biggest miracle that God has done. And Jesus, hallelujah, is alive. Amen. Amen.